Good morning. This morning we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll be looking at the first nine verses. If you have one of the Bibles you've provided by the church, you can turn to page 557, and we'll look for the big number 8, and that's where we'll begin in a second. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is about living wisely with those who have power over you. The preacher will begin in verse 1 by a general commendation of wisdom, and then he's going to jump into a real-world scenario about how you deal with an all-powerful king. The answer the preacher gives is very straightforward. Do what the king says. If you're faced with someone who can't be challenged, who holds your life or livelihood in his hands, then obey him. It's kind of a no-brainer, especially if you look at it from the perspective of basic street smarts. Preserve your hide, right? But in a room full of people like us, I imagine that some objections immediately start to stir up in our minds. Now, some of these objections are kind of superficial, like, well, who put him in charge? Other objections may be more thoughtful, like, what if the king commands me to do something that's evil? Or what if there's a a calamity coming down the road that I can see and the king won't take my advice? What do I do then? Surely the path of wisdom in those cases is not simply do what you're told, As we know, there have been a lot of really bad rulers in world history, and there are still some bad rulers today. And this is so much the case that enlightened modern people like us living in the West, we've rejected the very idea of absolute monarchy altogether. We're prone to ask, can there be any wisdom at all in simply obeying a ruler like this? We need to start off by recognizing that we're naturally skeptical of authority. But as we look at this passage today, we're going to see that the preacher is more sophisticated than to simply advocate obedience to all authority. He knows about abusive rulers. But simple obedience is where he starts. So that's where we're going to start as well. Our first point this morning is... Obey those in power because God put them there. Obey those in power because God put them there. Kids, that's the first answer on the children's listening guide, which you can grab off the back table. Obey those in power because God put them there. With that, let's read the first five verses of this chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Listen to God's word. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise will know the proper time and the just way. This is God's word. So as we saw, the preacher, the preacher's first word here is the commendation of wisdom. 
He says, when you have wisdom, it makes your face shine. It softens the hardness of your face. And really what he's saying here is that wisdom is life-giving. Those who possess wisdom have a kind of health and joy that even shows up in the way they look. He takes time here at the outset to commend wisdom because in the first half of verse 1, he tells us that wisdom is rare. Who is like the wise? Who knows how to interpret a thing? Who knows how to interpret the things that they encounter? The implication is there, there aren't many who are really wise. There aren't many who can understand what's going on and give a right interpretation. Not many have wisdom, but wisdom is good. It gives life. And so we should seek it. We should seek that thing which makes our face shine. And here's one way to be wise. Here's one way to seek wisdom. Keep the king's command. Obey those in power. One of the challenges of this passage is that many of the verses here have multiple legitimate translations. And we come to one of those here in verse 2. The last half of this verse is translated in the ESV as because of God's oath to him. Keep the, king's of, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. But many other translations put it this way. Keep the king's command because of your oath made before God. A more literal rendering of this verse it can be found in the King James Version, but it doesn't really bring any clarity. He said, the King James says, I counsel thee to keep the king's command and that in regard of the oath of God. So they just kind of leave it translated sort of bare, the oath of God. It's unclear. Is it God's oath to the king? Is it our oath to the king? What's going on here? I'm not really sure we can find a definitive answer. We can make sense of both. So we know that among the kings of Israel, God had made an oath to their father David. And that oath was to David and his sons to be their God, to be a father to them. So that makes sense. But it can also make sense in the way that subjects swear an allegiance to the king. And so the preacher is saying, keep that oath you've made to the king as if you've made it to God. Both make sense. I'm not sure we can come down to a definitive answer, but there is a foundational truth behind both Views, And that foundational truth is that God establishes rulers. And so our relationship to rulers, we have to see that as in, in the sense of our relationship to God himself. God establishes rulers, and this is true for all rulers, whether the rulers are godly rulers or evil rulers. So we can see this in John 19.11, Jesus speaking to Pilate during one of his trials You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God gave Pilate authority. Authority over Christ in that moment. And so the wise way to look at those in power is to see that God put them there. The Apostle Paul agrees with this idea as well. He says that those who rule are appointed by God. He even goes so far as to call them God's servants. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
So when God's appointed rulers give commands, those under authority should obey them. In verses 3 through 5, the preacher expands on this obedience. So first in verse 3, he says, Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. This is probably a way of saying, don't disrespect the ruler. If you are in the king's presence, there is certain protocol to follow. You don't just rush out of the room in a huff. There's a way to do it that's respecting the office, respecting the person. And so a wise person understands the etiquette of relating to rulers, and they put it into practice. Most of us understand this sort of innately. Uh, Don't your manners improve when the officer steps to your window and says, Sir or ma'am, do you know why I pulled you over today? We all get real polite. Unless maybe we just have a bee in our bonnet at that moment. We don't talk the same way to our boss when he walks into the room as we may have been talking to our buddy, right? We know that there's etiquette around authority, and the wise put it into practice. Now, we recognize it's possible to do that out of hypocrisy, or you might do that out of flattery. But the preacher is saying you can also do that out of wisdom. There's wisdom in knowing how to show respect to those to whom it is due. That's part of living under authority. Next, he says, Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does, speaking of the king, he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, What are you doing? This is another case where there's some question about how to translate what an evil cause is. So many translators and commentators take evil cause to mean an unpleasant matter or something that displeases the king. So the wise subject knows when his advice would be welcome. He doesn't drone on about ideas that the king doesn't like. Just to make this practical for our current context, if you work for kind of a large mainstream employer, you probably aren't going to walk into the executive suite this month and express all your opinions about how they're handling Pride Month. They've not asked for that opinion, and you know how that opinion will be received. The wise person knows when to keep their mouth shut. Again, that could be cowardice at certain moments, but there's wisdom there in knowing what to say and when to say it. Finally, in verse 5, we see a benefit of wisdom. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. If you follow wisdom, you'll stay out of trouble. Now, there's a danger here in kind of interpreting all these um, commendations of wisdom in a sort of cynical way. We could read the preacher here as saying, just kind of go along to get along. Be a chameleon-like pragmatist. Abandon your principles as long as you get by and conform. But looking at these uh, commendations of wisdom like that is to forget the first principle. Those in power have been put there by God. So we all live in the place we do, with the jobs we have, under the authorities that we're under, because of God's will. Now, there surely is a way of living with people and trying to conform that's ungodly. But the preacher here is showing us that there is a way to do so out of a desire to honor God. There's a way of conformity that seeks to be at peace with all people. 
a way of conformity that we seek because our ultimate goal is to honor and serve our good and wise God. So we don't go along to get along. We go along in order to serve God. We submit to our leaders as a way to honor God. Now, because of our suspicion of authority, we're tempted to believe that the only way to act with integrity is to act independently in reacting against authority. So our national heroes are people like Patrick Henry, who stood up to the British monarchy and said, give me liberty or give me death. We love those kinds of guys. We love Martin Luther standing against the papacy saying, here I stand. I can do no other. I cannot violate my conscience. We love those pictures of integrity. And those are great pictures. But we have to recognize that God does have a place for submitting to authority. We need to remember that our sovereign God, who put rulers in place, is also our good God. He is our merciful, righteous, and wise God. And he knows better than any of us when our rulers are acting rightly or wrongly. When we, see, when we come into contact with a, a ruler and their command, the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us our first instinct should be to obey it. That's how people under authority approach those in authority. Is that how you approach it? It's not my natural approach. I'm pretty good at picking out the problems in, in a command I've been given or just naturally being contrarian. It's all too easy to do that. It's all too easy to poke holes in those who are in authority over us. Or think about it this way. What's your witness to your neighbors or your coworkers when it comes to how you respond to authority? Are you known as the guy who's striving to honor those in authority? Or are you known for your wacky, defiant contrarianism? Are you always making a fuss about the things that you disagree with? About the ways this could have been better if only you were in charge or had been consulted? Does your approach to the commands of your rulers reveal a deep trust in the goodness of God? The preacher began by telling us how uncommon wisdom is. Isn't he spot on? Not many of us exhibit this kind of wisdom when it comes to authority. It's fair to point out that we live in a culture that encourages freedom of speech and we stand in a long tradition of those who have bucked against authority. But we can't let that tradition, that culture, excuse a rebellious heart. The preacher is asking us to examine our hearts. How do we relate to those in authority? So how is God calling you to repent of your views of authority? And how can you encourage others in the way they approach authority? One of the ways that a church can be the church for each other is is to encourage this kind of humility and wisdom in how we view authority. We often have occasion to talk to each other and eventually our employers come up and difficulties we might have there. Can you take those opportunities to talk about your friend's bad boss in a way that would encourage them to look to their good God? Encourage them to look for those ways where they can submit and honor their boss. 
We need the help of our brothers and sisters in the church if we are to walk wisely in this way. So we are to obey those in power because God put them there. As I said in the beginning, this is where the preacher begins, but he knows that there are more complicated things in life than simple conformity. And you see that complexity sort of sneak in at the end of verse 5. So we read there, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. We might ask, well, what's there to know? We've already been told, just obey, right? Well, the preacher says that the wise will know the proper time and the just way, and then he expands on this in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Now, he just told us that through this wisdom and obeying the king, we can avoid certain kinds of trouble. But now he's telling us that our trouble lies heavy on us. See, it's more complicated than simple obedience. This doesn't invalidate the wisdom of obeying the king's command and seeking to submit, but it does show us the limitations of that wisdom. And it leads us to our second point. Wisdom doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life. So our first point was obey those in power because God put them there. Our second point is wisdom doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life. With that, let's read the last half of the chapter. We're going to read or the, this passage, starting in verse 5 again, and reading down through verse 9. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So the wise path is to obey the king's command, but even that path is heavy with trouble. And here in these verses, the preacher shows us where that trouble comes from. Most profoundly, he points to the power of death. This is a repeated refrain in Ecclesiastes and one that we'll encounter again in the coming weeks. No man, not even the king, whose word is supreme, has power over the day of death. Even in the most ideal situation where you're humbly submitting to a godly ruler and life is prospering, we are all troubled by death. We have the same amount of control over death as we have over the wind. Death is our trouble. Another trouble we face is because of what we do not know. None of us know the future. We can just think back over the last 20 years and all of the world-shaking events we did not know were coming. So none of us woke up on September 11, 2001, knowing a terror attack was coming. Now, I was in college then, so I woke up after the terror attack had come, but you get the picture. In the summer of 2017, none of us knew that Harvey was going to come and wreck Houston for five days in August. In the fall of 2019, none of us knew what the next two years would hold with a global pandemic and working remotely and social distancing. None of us know the illnesses that are coming our way. 
There's trouble lurking out there in the future that we do not know about. Really, the only certainty is that trouble is coming. And then coming back to the subject of authority, we face trouble because of those in power that use that power for evil purposes. No one in authority is perfect, and many who have authority are evil. And so we live in a world where man has power over man to his hurt. We see this with every kind of authority. You can look at it today in tyrants like the Kim dynasty in North Korea. They've been systematically abusing a whole nation of people for generations now. Tragically, we know of pastors and spiritual leaders who abuse their authority. They hurt the people that they're supposed to be shepherding and teaching. We know the tragedy of abusive parents and abusive spouses. We know that there are selfish and unethical bosses. And we know that we may be doing all we can to obey our rulers, to submit to authority, to live peaceably with all people, and yet still be targeted for harm by wicked people with authority. The preacher's wisdom about obeying the king's command doesn't come from his naivete or his idealism. He does live in the real world. And this brings us back to verses 5 and 6. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. There is a proper time and a righteous way to submit to those in power. And there is a proper time and a righteous way to disobey those in power. You may see something wrong at your office and have to become a whistleblower. You may be in an abusive marriage and need to escape it. There may come a time where we have to exercise civil disobedience against the laws of our land. Now, the preacher doesn't tell us specifically when or how to resist, but he does tell us the wise heart will know. They'll know the proper time and the just way. There's no guidebook to tell us what to do in every situation, but I think there are a couple things we can do to prepare for these situations. First, seek God's righteousness. Notice the preacher says that there is a just way, a righteous way to respond. If we're going to know how to resist an evil authority, then we need to have hearts and minds that are conformed to the righteousness of God. And we need that because there are all kinds of unrighteous ways to react against authority, right? We've already kind of explored that. We all know that lies within us. So we need to have hearts and minds formed by the righteousness of God. We need to know the scriptures, which is where we encounter God. We need to practice righteousness in our lives. One way the scriptures teach us about the righteous response or an unrighteous response to authority is is when it tells us not to take vengeance into our own hands because vengeance belongs to God. And so we don't stand up to authority in order to take the law into our own hands and take it upon ourselves to punish evildoers. That's not our job. We need to have our consciences conform to God's righteousness. When we do that, we're better able to assess the seriousness of a situation And know what's truly righteous and unrighteous. So we seek God's righteousness by knowing his word. We also seek it by being involved with a church. 
which is a group of people who are all intending to seek God's righteousness in their lives. I can learn how to seek God's righteousness by watching you, my brother and sister, seek God's righteousness in your lives. I can watch the way maybe you're dealing with a challenging situation at work or dealing with a challenging marriage. How you're seeking to submit and to love and to reject evil authority. We need to look at the way Christ responded to evil authority and see how he taught his disciples to live in the midst of an evil age. Righteousness comes through knowing our righteous God. So we seek wisdom in this way by seeking righteousness. A second thing we should do is ask for wisdom. This is what James instructs us to do in the first chapter of his letter. He tells us to ask for wisdom without doubting because God gives generously to all without reproach. If you need wisdom, ask God. He loves to give his people wisdom. James also, in chapter 3, helpfully distinguishes between godly wisdom, wisdom from above, and the demonic wisdom. I would like you to take a second and turn over there to James chapter 3. I'm going to turn almost to the very end of your Bibles. James chapter 3, verse 13. Kids, if you're using a Bible we've given you, turn to page 1012. I want us to read the, the last part of this chapter together, chapter 3, verse 13 through the end. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This sort of combines our previous point with this one. We should seek God's righteousness. God's wisdom is righteous wisdom. James says it's marked by gentleness and peace, not by selfish ambition. Notice in James that the picture of a wise person is not of the righteous contrarian revolutionary leading a charge. It's a reasonable, gentle, merciful person seeking to make peace. To seek to be wise, to ask for wisdom, is to seek to be that kind of person. To seek to be wise is to try to be around those kind of people. Listen to those people who are gentle and peaceable, seeking to make peace, open to reason. Ignore those people who are close to reason, who are contentious, who are trying to start fights. An important part of our seeking wisdom is that we should seek wisdom together. We need to be humble and honest about the fact that we don't know what to do in many situations. Let me urge you, don't leave important decisions about responding to evil authority up to yourself alone. We desperately need each other's help. This is why our relationship in the church are so important. They're important because trouble lies heavy upon us. We need one another. God has provided a church to you and me so that we can seek counsel when things are going wrong, when we're encountering that abusive boss or we're in that difficult relationship. 
Do you know your brothers and sisters well enough to know the places where they encounter difficulties with authority? Do people know you well enough to know the ways you struggle in this way? Seek wisdom together. Seek righteousness together. Seek righteousness and wisdom from the kind of people James describes. Peaceful, gentle people who are open to reason. People who are full of mercy. People who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Impartial people. Sincere people. It's that kind of wisdom that reaps a harvest of righteousness. But in all this we see that wisdom and obedience do not promise an easy life. Just as there's no discharge from the front lines of battle, there's no escaping the evil of this world. A righteous and wise life won't deliver you from the evil of this world. Nor can you escape the evil of this world through some evil scheme. Trouble lies heavy, and obedience doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life. There's a flip side to this, though, that obedience doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life, but troubles don't mean that you're disobedient. That's encouraging, isn't it? We're going to face trouble in this life, but doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. As often as not, I think the troubles that we face in this life are kind of a mixture. They're a mixture of facing some consequences of things we shouldn't have done, but also a mixture of things that we couldn't have controlled. Just things that God brought into our lives. So wisdom and righteousness don't guarantee a trouble-free life. It's part of wisdom to know that the path of wisdom may lead you into trouble. You are going to very likely be persecuted when you wisely and righteously respond to abusive authority. Or think about the people that we read about earlier in Matthew chapter 10 who were commanded by Jesus, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to another. You know, great that they were able to flee persecution, but it's really hard to be a refugee. You're going to face trouble. It's going to be difficult. If you leave an abusive relationship, you're going to be lonely. If you're a whistleblower at work, you may be fired or retaliated against. Obedience does not guarantee a trouble-free life. And nowhere is this more clear than in the life of our Savior. Jesus entered the life of trouble. He entered obedience that he knew was obedience unto death. Trouble lay heavy on Jesus. But what is so remarkable about Jesus is that he chose this trouble. For example, verse 7 doesn't apply to Jesus. It says, he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Jesus knew what was to be. He entered this life. He came knowing that he came to die. He came because he was motivated by love. Love for God and love for us. So that he willingly submitted himself to evil. He willingly submitted himself to those in authority who used their authority to hurt people. And they used it to crucify him. Jesus submitted to death in order to bring life to those who would trust him. And so Jesus is the hope of those who live in a troubled world. Over and over again, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he puts his finger on one of our most sensitive wounds, which is that the trouble in this world seems to come arbitrarily. The wise and the foolish, the righteous and the wicked, they all experience trouble. And he puts a point on this by saying they all die. They all go to the same place, the place of animals. But with Jesus, the randomness of death 
is overwhelmed by the free gift of God's grace. I want you to look at verse 8 again. It says, No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. And I want to key in on that word spirit. Many translators, including the commentator Craig Bartholomew, translated it this way. No one has the power over the wind. That's because the word spirit and breath or spirit and wind in Hebrew are the same word. So um, the beginning of Genesis, you see the spirit hovered over the face of the waters and it could translate that wind there. So you have to depend on context. But as I read this, and I read this idea of the wind of death. It sparked to mind another place where the Bible talks about uncontrolled wind. And that's in John chapter 3 when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. Jesus was telling Nicodemus that you must be born again, and Nicodemus couldn't understand this. He asked, do I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? So Jesus tries to explain it further in John 3, 5 through 8. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus entered this troubled world, a world marked by rebellion, and he came to bring life to the dead. Now the truth is that none of us are simply victims in this evil world. We're all participants in the rebellion. And that's why we are rightly subjected to the the capricious and cold winds of death. But God has not abandoned us to that state. The Son of God has come to suffer death, to be lifted up on the cross, to pay for our sins. And because he conquered death, we also can have life. And so because of what Jesus has done, a new wind is blowing. But praise God, this is no arbitrary wind of death. It's the wind of life directed by the grace and good pleasure of God. Though it seems random, the wind of death only finds those who deserve it. But the Spirit of God gives life to undeserving sinners. It brings people from death to life simply by the grace of God. By God's grace, He takes people who are rebels deserving death and makes us His children. The Spirit does this by leading us to Christ, who is our merciful Savior and our righteous King. In Christ, we see what a good king is really like. A good king who's a good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. And in Christ, we hear perfectly good commands. Commands that we can obey with no reservations. Christ is the antithesis of all this corrupt authority we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And so if you find yourself overwhelmed by this picture painted in Ecclesiastes 8, a picture of trouble that's inescapable, no matter how good you may be, if you're overwhelmed by that trouble, look to Jesus Christ. He will forgive you of your sin and give you eternal life if you trust in him. So in Christ, the hopeless find hope. But we should be clear... Faith in Jesus does not give us immediate freedom from every trouble. As we know, sometimes following Jesus, again, leads us into more trouble. 
But we should see the seeds of complete freedom have been planted in Christ and they have sprung to life in his resurrection. The world of trouble described by the preacher, it continues for now, but its time is coming to an end. Jesus' resurrection from the dead marks the the beginning of the end of the reign of death. And the exaltation of Jesus means that the days of tyrants and abusers are numbered. They will face Jesus. We will all face him. And it's because that Jesus is alive and because he's coming back that we can apply the lessons of Ecclesiastes 8. Because Jesus has saved us and he reigns, we can obey those people God has put in power over us. We can obey them because we live for him as his ambassadors. And so we can pursue peace with all people. We can even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because Jesus is coming again to make all things new, we can endure the trouble that we continue to face. Because we belong to him, the resurrection and the life, we're strengthened to stand up and fight against evil authority. We're we're strengthened to stand up for those who are weak and helpless. Because we don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. We serve the one who's numbered every hair on our heads, whose eyes on the sparrow. He values us more than sparrows. So the wisdom that makes your face shine is the wisdom to look to the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His grace is greater than the troubles of this world. Entrust yourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and the ways that we struggle to respond to authority. You know our our selfish ambition and our divisiveness and the ways that we can be committed to that demonic authority and that demonic wisdom. Father, we repent of these things and ask you for your help. We pray that you will fill our eyes with Christ, that we'll know his great love for us in the gospel. Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy to us, that you have seen fit to send your spirit into our hearts, to open our blind eyes, to give us ears to hear, to give us faith. Father, we pray that you'll help us to grow in wisdom and righteousness. We pray that we will be a church who are deliberate about helping each other grow in these ways. We ask you for deepened relationships so we can share the ways that we're struggling or the things that we're not sure about. How do we respond to this situation? Help us to know one another and point each other to your goodness and grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.